Welcome to the Pardes Parsha podcast, brought to you by the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Svi Hirschfield, and I'm excited to be here with you each week for a thoughtful and engaging discussion about the weekly Torah portion. Each episode, I'll be joined by a wonderful faculty member from Pardes to dive deep into the text, exploring its relevance and insights for our lives today. We will aspire to be creative, personal, and a little brave as we leave no stone unturned, seeking to bring out meaning and significance from each Parsha. And here's a request from us. If you enjoy our conversations, please take a moment to leave a five-star review for the podcast. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important discussions. So whether you're a seasoned Torah scholar or a curious beginner, we invite you to join us on this journey of learning and discovery. With that, let's dive in and explore this week's Parsha together. Hello, everyone. So excited to have you with us, at least in theory, I guess. You're not in the room with us. It would make recording very difficult, but so glad to have you out there and listening to a Pardes Parsha podcast. Today, we are privileged not only to be discussing Parshat Shmini, but to have Rabbi Dr. Alicia Anshalevitz, who is joining us, who's going to share some of his Torah, and I might even argue with him a little bit. We'll see how things go. Welcome, Rav Alicia. How are you? Okay, Tzvi. Thank you. How are you? I am good, and it just you should know that Alicia was recently honored at Pardes, and people said beautiful things about him, so it's really wonderful to have him. So we're here in Vayikra, we're in Leviticus now, and I understand, Alicia, that you have chosen uh, the mighty hill of Kashrut, that Jewish dietary laws to climb, which I think is wonderful, because a lot of people seem to have two reactions to these laws. One reaction is, what? Huh? I don't get this at all. This seems random. I don't really get why this animal, not that animal. It doesn't conform to the way humanity thinks in terms of eating necessarily, number one. And I would say number two, for a lot of people, they really emphasize the historical cultural element, that keeping kosher has been a way of maintaining Jewish community, maintaining family practice. In other words, they really seem to view it as this ritual that we observe as a way of connecting to each other and connecting to our Jewish past and building community. But I will admit, for many people, there's not a lot of discussion either of the moral ethical plane or even the spiritual plane. So here we are. I know you're going to offer us a different approach, and we're excited to hear it. So please, walk us through. So first premise, if somebody commands something, then there's a reason they're commanding it. And if somebody commands something specific, there's a reason they're commanding that specific thing. So if the Torah tells us to avoid certain animals, it's not to randomly create some cultural parameters or limits, because then you just pick a yellow ribbon. Rather, those specific things are forbidden because of something about them. Okay, so number one, Alicia's coming in hot, (laughs) and he's taking a position like our friend Maimonides. God is the perfect wisdom, would not command something empty or meaningless. There's wisdom to every commandment, and therefore, he's not going to just read these laws and say, oh, that's interesting, or that's this or that, but you believe we got to dig deeper and figure out what the wisdom is behind these laws. Correct. So, we'll pick one. In the list of forbidden animals, we have the pig. We do. Betachazir, we are in Perik Yudalef, Pasuk Zayin. Betachazir and the pig. Kimafriz parsahu. It does have split hooves, but 
it doesn't chew its cud. I see. And your assumption is this refers to all forms of pig, including the kind in Chinese restaurants. Not just ham or bacon, but spare ribs and all the other stuff that people like to eat as well. <laughs> all forms of pig. Yes. Okay. Keep going. I'm with you. Okay. So the Torah says you can't eat the pig, presumably based on what you just read, because it only has one of the two required signs. It has the split hoof, but it doesn't chew its cud. Correct. The pig, which doesn't chew its cud, is actually not an herbivore. Pig is an omnivore. And one of the things described about pigs in Yosef Yashayahu is that pigs destroy the vines. They eat all the grapes. They just destroy plants. In the Philistine cities, they would eat pig, one of the ways archaeologically of distinguishing between Canaanite Philistines versus Israelites. But eventually, Philistines also stopped eating pig, except for the biggest city, which was Gat. And even there, the bones of pigs went down in number because pigs are not appropriate to the climate here. So my simple suggestion is the Torah says, yes, it has hooves, which means it's not some type of wild, destructive animal, hunting animal, but it's an omnivore. And therefore, don't eat it so that you don't raise it. So the Torah is giving us, if I understand correctly, like helpful economic advice or helpful social construction advice. Yes, which is important to give because we tend to be blinded by immediate interests. So if I'm rich, I'll say, I want pig. The fact that it will destroy produce for others, for me, maybe in the long term, but for others and for poor people and for poor farmers, I might ignore that. The Torah says, don't. It's forbidden. So can you give us another example from this list that you feel like can be explained as having a sound moral or social reason to it? So the general requirement to avoid eating any animal which doesn't have split hooves is a requirement to avoid eating any animal that is a predator. And predators provide meat, not as good as herbivores, but predators do provide some meat. The biggest problem with eating predators is that somebody has to kill them. And whoever kills them is going to be risking themselves, which is why classically in the ancient world, a way of showing off one's prowess was to hunt predators or, for entertainment, to send slaves to kill predators, famously among Romans, but not just among Romans. So take predators off the menu so we won't risk our lives when we are gathering food. That's one of the reasons, right? Any other reasons? This is very interesting. How about shratzim, you know, little reptile-y, creepy-crawly things? Other examples you may have. So shratzims, I forget the word now, but their body build is similar enough to humans that they're actually an amazing vector for spreading disease, which means other than making somebody eat shratzim means you tell them, go out in the desert and look for that rock mole, mole rock, whatever it's called, I forget what it's called. Other than sending them to, you know, look for scavenge in the desert, which is bad enough, you're also sending them to eat vectors of disease. So obviously don't do that. And so the Torah, you're saying, has to prohibit it because, like many of these things, the individual doesn't want to feel limited. Even though it's good for society, everybody makes an exception for themselves, and therefore, right, it's bad. Everyone needs to pay taxes or we want to have a government. So that's one. But when it comes to me, good. I don't want to pay my taxes because I prefer to keep my own money. Okay, so one is I might think short-term and say I'm hungry, I want to eat something. But the other side is once it's permitted to eat it, then the rich person tells the poor person, go eat that. Two weeks ago, we did Parshat Vayikra. And I just explained that the Torah forbids chalev because... Fat. Prohibited fat. The tallow. The, the prohibited main, fat around right. the kidneys in there, right. yeah. It forbids it because that actually is not a good nutritional source, and it's better to use it for heating, as in putting on the mizbeach, burning fire. So, yes, you have to forbid things that people will dump on others, like on the poor. So, Alicia, this is very interesting. I'm assuming then, with all of these laws, you would feel obligated, like Maimonides... <laughs> 
It's a nice comparison for you <laughs> to either to try to figure it out. But in other words, your assumption is there is a moral or societal wisdom at play that accounts for these laws. So I want to raise two questions for you. Okay. One, the very famous line, Maimonides actually uses it in his introduction to Chalek, that there's nothing wrong with having a desire to eat these prohibited foods, right? That's the great distinction he makes. There's something wrong with your soul if you desire to kill or to steal. But there's nothing wrong with your soul if you desire to eat pig or even eat a bug. However, the Torah prohibits it. And he quotes the, the famous rabbinic source, which I know you have thought about at length, if she e if she source, right? Where I believe it's Rabbi Eliezer who says something to the effect of, don't say I don't want to eat the pig. Rather, say I do want to eat it. But what can I do? God told me not to. It feels like it's formulating the opposite to what you're saying, that really this is what we the classically called a chok, a law without reason. What is your sense of what's going on there? Okay, so without discussing for the moment, at least, the midrash about these are the chukim that I've given you, which I think is misread and is an anti-Christian diatribe. Let's read Rabbi Yezer in context of what we just said. I'm a Jew. I understand it's wrong to eat pig. There are two uh, laws discussed there. One is pig and one is shatnez. Shatnez is linen with wool. Linen with wool is the reason classically that wool was interwoven into linen was to dye the linen in royal blue, which means not only am I wearing linen, I'm wearing really, really expensive linen. Okay? And the Torah is like, whoa, get a grip on yourself. No. Okay? Which is why the Torah then says nearby, in the parsha there, to wear tisit. Yes, but everybody does wear some royal blue as some form of dignity. So, keeping in mind that Rabbi Eliezer is discussing two laws are actually understandable, let's move into the Roman culture. I'm a Jew, on Roman culture, when do I end up saying EFSHI? When I'm around Gentiles. And I say, you know, I just don't want that. They're like, oh, have some pig. I don't want to embarrass them myself, start raising issues that we Jews oppose pig. We think it's a bad thing to be raising pig here in the land of Israel. It's destructive. It's morally harmful. I say, you know, I'm just not in the mood. Rabbi says, no, you don't have the right to say that. You have to stand up and say, no, I would like it. Pig's delicious. <laughs> Obviously, I'd like it. But God said, don't do this. God, who gave this moral commandment, said, don't do it. So guys, no, you're wrong. So you read that. It's very interesting. It's really to the opposite. It's not saying there's no reason, but rather you're saying you're obligated to say God did give a reason. And it's not because we don't like the taste, but there is this moral reason. And I have to bring it out into the world, even as you Gentiles consume these things without thinking twice about it. Right. Which then answers your question about Rambam in Moronavuchim, because obviously a person who was willing to kill, there's something off in their personality. But somebody who's willing to use, let's say, a cell phone, and I'm like, I don't say they're morally problematic in their personality, even if I then, let's say, I were to attack them and say, you shouldn't use a cell phone because it's produced by slave people in some country. But there's nothing morally problematic about personality, the fact that they want to use a cell phone. Yeah, the wanting itself does not indicate Correct. a lack. So I want to pursue another line of thought with you based on what you're saying. And you know, I'm going back and forth in my own mind. Will this encourage people to keep kosher? <laughs> or when people hear the reasons, well, I'll come to that in a moment. But first, what about the classic religious value of I do it just because God told me, right? In other words, that is there a value to having commandments and I'll speak personally, I find value in that. I find that sometimes it makes me more God-aware when I'm aware that I'm doing something not because I see its immediate benefit or even long-term benefit, but the commander has commanded me in this. And I feel close to the commander 
precisely because I don't see any human wisdom or human benefit. It's just something God commanded me to do. Is there any room for that in your system? Okay, let me give two responses to that. You can give more than two. (laughs) One is, before we get to is there any room? Okay. The downside to transforming all of Judaism into that, or 90% of Judaism into that, is that we stop learning how to be human. And we say every day in Shema, speak about what God commands all of Torah every moment as you're walking around meaning we're supposed to reflect on what does God want of us and if we shift it into fiat or identity or religious whatever you're going to call it we're no longer reflecting on what God actually wants us to do in life as human beings so that's the cost of going in that direction Okay, so if we did that all the time, you're saying we would lose out on basically the wisdom of the Torah as a human wisdom. Right. Or God's wisdom for human beings. Right. Right. The other side, is there any room for it? Look, I can't oppose what people need. A human need is a human need, and therefore it's valid. But personally, I find it hard to miss a sense of God when you're watching a sunrise and like, that's why you say Yotzeor, not because of salvation, oh, it's time to say Shema, because you're like, you're going, oh my God. And of course, Yotzeor is a Jewish way of saying, oh my God. So that's one. And the other is, it's hard enough just living up to being human. Of course, you're answering to, at least I'm answering to God all the time. Not very well necessarily, but I'm answering to God all the time just by trying to be human. I don't need a chok above me to feel a connection to God. What about the whole like mystical take that some of these rules operate on a level of holiness or mystery that goes beyond rationality or reason? You know, people talk about how unkosher substances affect the heart in this mysterious way. Any room for that? Or you feel like that, again, just locks you out of the human element? So I feel that that works stronger the more it makes sense. If I eat, as in the Gemara, Trefodor mitamtem mitalev, they disturb the heart. If it's a moral problem to eat it, then even though it's delicious and it's meat and it's fresh and I'm eating, I'm not vegan, I'm not vegetarian, I'm eating it, fine. But it's mentam because I realize that there's something off in what I'm doing. That's what allows that experience to occur. Whereas when I read Zohar and I read the Ari, it's amazing because I understand that he understands what's actually being discussed and then he speaks it in metaphysical language. In other words, what we do as human beings plays out on a grand level experientially. That's fine. But it has to be grounded for it to actually play out on a grand level, like a birthday party. Birthdays aren't real, but we experience them as real, and then boom, they're real. That's fine. But they have to start with, this person was born on that date, there's some connection. I hear you, but I still think there is room to argue that the whole system, and what the Kabbalists mean, I guess we could debate that for a very long time, (laughs) whether we take their metaphor as serious metaphor or not, but this idea of a hidden reality that's beyond human understanding, I guess that's the bottom line. Do I want to reserve a little bit of room for things that I can't understand and won't be able to understand that points to the limitations we have as human beings that are not subject to human intellect? That's the moment of in self, that's the moment of nigun, but I don't think it has any role in norms. That's not for Jewish law. That's for when we sing, when we pray, right. maybe when we look at the sunset, but that's not for Jewish law. Okay. So we can agree to... Well, <laughs> I partially agree and partially disagree, actually, in a very interesting, funny way. But let's go to the one that I think might be more challenging. Someone says, okay, Ravalisha, you have convinced me that kashrut is about these moral demands and societal norms. But guess what? Pig is not our problem today. 
we have a much bigger problems of the ecological damage of eating meat at all and how meat is transported. And keeping kosher doesn't address the issues of using paper plates, wasting water, how food is transported, migrant workers picking our very kosher vegetables. You see where I'm going with okay. that. Why wouldn't we be wiser then to recreate a kashrut that's more in line with the morality and ethics and the building of, of social awareness that you say kashrut is all about? So I'm going to say something that's socially heretical on both progressive and conservative side. We don't know what we're doing as humans. We tend to say we know what problems we want to fix, and then we imagine we can do steps one, two, three, A, B, and C, and fix the problems. But frankly, paper plates are not going to fix the environment, or telling everybody to be you know, solidly married, whatever, on the conservative side is not going to suddenly change the material conditions we live under and the different arrangements people find. We tend to imagine. And the advantage of working from Torah is that you're working from something, and you say, okay, what's the next step? Not jumping. When we jump, we see a problem, we imagine, I can project the solution without actually playing out the costs, what will go wrong, why it won't play out, why it actually won't even help. I feel, though, you've retreated because okay. you initially put great faith in human wisdom's ability to figure out the purpose of these laws and their design and what they're trying yes. to create. Why can't that same human wisdom be used to design better laws? Because the way that human wisdom works when we compare very similar things. In other words, if it works to wear a seatbelt, then you might come up with a next safety rule. If you extrapolate a value, a concern, a value especially, then you have no way to evaluate what you're going to do wrong. The wisdom of humans is to learn from the wisdom of humans or Torah, whatever, God that has worked. And once I have something that has worked, I can start asking, what's the next thing I do that's similar? If that works, what's the next thing I do that's so similar to what's that? what's the next thing you want to do in Kashrut that's similar, that could work? What do you want to institute? Well, first of all, we're just working within Jewish language. Like, obviously, for years, was a discussion that veal, young calves, right? Right. Well, it may be kosher, but it's sar chayim. It causes pain to animals. Thank you. It's actually trefa, an animal that's uh, fatally wounded. It's actually trefa. If its lungs get hurt, an animal's trefa. The sages already said that. If an animal's lungs collapse out of fear, it's a trefa. Like, we have these sources. What we've done is we've turned halacha into something technical, and we don't realize we actually have sources telling us all these moral issues and how to address them in a very, very local level, because wisdom always comes local level on top of local level on top of local level. But in terms of the environment... Do you want to expand kashrut laws to include issues of the environment, changing the way shechita, ritual slaughter, is done, changing the way workers are treated? Okay, so again, going with shechita. Ritual slaughter. Ritual slaughter. I don't need to change how it's done. I need to have it done correctly. There are rules about how an animal has to be shechted, as I said, about fear and so forth. You can't turn an animal over in its hoist and then slice it with a knife and say that, that was kosher. It's not. That's against the laws of shechita. Just people don't keep all the details in mind. They tend to prefer certain details because it's about ritual. Once it's about ritual, it doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. You choose which details you keep in mind. But actually, you can't check that way. Okay, I'm still going to keep pushing this one more time. Those values of the environment, of migrant workers, of all those things, would you want to stand up and say that the Jewish world should adopt a policy that says fruits and vegetables that are picked in unfair circumstances should be treated as unkosher food? So with environment, I'll say what I've said now, and they'll jump to migrant workers, which is don't 
think about environment until one has worked on local environment issues. And that, again, has its halachot, has Torah that helps move us forward. Of course, you might move a little bit differently if you're in different settings, but we have fruit trees. The actual concern for the local environment is there. And then the more you build up competence locally, the more you can combine competencies to speak about larger issues. But jumping to larger issues will not solve anything. Nothing being done now is solving anything. I know that's why I said I'm a heretic. As regards migrant workers, we have already discussions of that you're not allowed to have hana'ah benefit from work that is imposed upon somebody inappropriately, such as in a shemitah year, such as growing kilayim. Mixing a species when you grow right. them. So classically, it's wheat sown among grapevines, which is what you tell the poor to do. I want to grow a grapevine instead of a wheat field. My poor worker says, what am I going to eat? You say, yeah, sure, grow some wheat among the grapes. And we're like, you know what? All that has to be torn up. We actually take away from the owner. We say, nobody's allowed to eat it. In fact, owner's not allowed to have benefit. We uproot it. We have rules. We have precedents. We just can't jump 2,000 you know, meters and figure out what to do next. But you would be in favor of some small jumps. I'm in favor of applying halacha. It's called psaq. But one has to know halacha well as opposed to putting it into technical categories. Well, or know it the way you know it. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's be fair. Knowing it well, I think, it may be a little bit unfair. Okay, okay, let me put it this way. One can know all the details and not put them together, or one can interrelate the details. So... Your belief, if I understand that we can start summing up, is that if we study this material with the right perspective, it will yield modern-day steps that we can take, not erasing earlier steps, but building on them and pushing us in a direction towards improvement, that it's not two separate worlds entirely. Correct. And so, therefore, you are hopeful and confident that Torah is going to be implemented in our society, in our Jewish world, in ways it's going to actually make our moral, ethical, and social lives better. That's why I'm a Zionist. Wow. So we got a lot out of Revolution <laughs> today. He admitted to being a heretic. He admitted to being a Zionist. I can only wonder when we do another podcast what we're going to squeeze out of him. But wow, thank you very much. Anything, is there a final message that you want to share or just to think about as we study this Parsha? Yes, just approach every text. Torah and even anything that people have said, approach it with charity to look for the insight because one loses nothing by learning another insight about the human condition. Okay. Those are good instructions from Ravalisha. We're not just going to memorize or remember the details, <laughs> but he's encouraging us to find the wisdom in those details, which I said I think is very evocative of Maimonides and other members of Jewish tradition. So, wow, this has been very enlightening. I appreciate your time thank and you. your insights very, very much. And I want to thank all of you for joining us as we continue our journey through the various parshiot, the different readings, and in a way we invite you into our Pardes Beit Midrash to join us in our thinking and our thoughts about these important texts and values and ideas. So thank you, and I hope you will join us again in the future. Thank you for tuning in to the Pardes Parsha podcast, recorded here at Nomi Studios in Jerusalem. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode and gained some new insights and perspectives on the Torah portion. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform and leave us a five-star review if you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback helps us reach more people with these important conversations. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to exploring the Torah with you again next week on the Pardes Parsha podcast. Shabbat Shalom.